Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Shani Reichman. So this week we saw something that I think is a little out of the ordinary, at least in terms of how outside observers see and understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the broader settlement issue, which is that a settlement, or more accurately, an outpost, a part of a settlement, um, part of Elazar and the Gush Etzion bloc, was dismantled by the Israeli authorities. Um, this wasn't a push from the government, but it was the result of a court ruling. Um, and that settlement was Nativ Havot. Yeah, I think it brings us to this bigger question of if this is actually reflective of a change and if it's something we should feel pretty positively about, that the democratic institutions in Israel are functioning as they should be and, and actually dismantling settlements when they're inappropriately placed, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, there's some people who would probably argue that all the settlements are inappropriately <laughs> placed, but... The, but your point stands, and that um, it, it raises a question. It's if you are a supporter of a two-state solution, you believe that the settlements pose a problem. It's hard not to feel, um, you know, that this was some sort of a, a victory. But um, this was again; it was the result of the court, the court's decision, and it wasn't something that the government was necessarily pushing for. Um, but on the flip side, it flies in the face of like this image, like people have of Israel. Like the settlements, um, stories expanding. Yeah, and seeing the images of people resisting. So even to like left wing or center left Zionists in the United States and in Israel to see the images of of these religious boys resisting and and sort of I don't know. It wasn't as aggressive as maybe it could have been. So I'm not really sure where I stand on that. But quite the optic. Right. I mean, there were there were 15 houses that were were taken down, and I think the first uh, 14 were taken down peacefully, and mm-hmm. the 15th was where, um, like you said, Shani, there, were, there was some, some violent pushback um, against the authorities, and nine policemen, uh, security forces, were, were injured. So, you know, this comes at an interesting time for Israel and the settlement movement and the prospect for a two-state solution more broadly. The Israeli government today, I think it would be accurate to describe as the most right-wing in Israel's history. Um, and I think Israel, the country, the government, are very closely identified with the settlement movement. It definitely leads into this question of where American Jews in particular stand on this issue, especially those of us who identify very strongly as Zionistic. Where is our role now, especially with um, an American administration that a lot of us don't align with and an Israeli administration that a lot of us don't align with? So where do we stand sort of on the outskirts of, of the current a traditional Zionist movement, which is how, how we feel. It's not necessarily the reality, but it's definitely how a lot of people feel right now. Right, and it's interesting that you should raise the idea of an American administration that a lot of American Jews don't necessarily identify with. Obviously, American Jews tend overwhelmingly to vote Democratic, but specifically here and on this issue, um, you know, past Republican administrations have received negligible Jewish electoral support, um, but have had pretty mainstream policies on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You look at George H.W. Bush, who was sort of like the initiator of the, the initial Palestinian peace process, um, you know, received a very, very, very small portion of the um, American Jewish vote, um, but, you know, moved along the peace process that eventually became the Oslo process and eventually transformed into what we understand as the, the present uh now kind of stagnant move for a two-state solution. But it's interesting with this administration because not only is it a Republican administration that um, had negligible uh, support, electoral support, but you look at who's in it. Like, you know... Yeah, David Friedman. David Friedman, Jared Kushner, the Kushner family, um, people who have, you know, personally been supportive of the settlement movement. So not only is it a move away from the American Jewish electoral base, but it's also a move towards uh, what's considered to be the right wing in Israel itself. To help us break down where we're at with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, with the settlements specifically, and with the American role in all of this, both American opposition to the settlements, but um, more specifically American support for the settlements, private uh, personal American support for the settlements, 
we have someone who is uh, really specialized in this area. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Sariel Hershorn. Dr. Hershorn is a university research lecturer and Sydney Brichtow Fellow at the University of Oxford, where she works in the Faculty of Oriental Studies and the Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Her recent book, City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settler Movement, was published last year by Harvard University Press and recently received the 2018 Choice Award Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature from the Jewish Book Council and was a finalist for the 2017 Celebrate 350 Award for American Jewish Studies, also from the Jewish Book Council. Dr. Hershorn has also written for the New York Times, Haaretz, Moment Magazine, The Forward, The Times of Israel, and many others. She has appeared on radio and television outlets, including BBC, Al Jazeera, and NPR, and now Israel Policy Pod. Dr. Hershorn will also be returning to the United States to take up a new post at the Crown Center for Jewish and Israel Studies at Northwestern University this fall. Uh, Dr. Hershorn, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. So would you mind explaining a little bit more about what happened in Netiv HaVot and why was the settlement evacuated in the first place? All right, so Netiv HaVot is actually not a settlement itself, but it is a sort of sub-neighborhood of a sub-neighborhood of the settlement of Elazar, which is in the Gushatzion or Tree of Zion block, not very far from the larger settlement of uh, Efrat in um, in uh, the West Bank. Um, over the last few days, about 15 houses in this sub-neighborhood were evacuated by the Israeli Defense Forces, and um, this was because of a high court ruling um, uh, about a year ago, but which just took effect now, which called um, for the evacuation of these homes because they were built on private Palestinian land. When one of these settlements is evacuated, it's the result of a court order. It's not uh, you know, part of a larger political program. Obviously, this government isn't pushing for settlements to be evacuated. Because of that, what are the long-term effects of a settlement being evacuated? And you heard Naftali Bennett saying, you know, with the 15 houses demolished, we're going to build 350 more. So is that the outlook? Is that the, the trajectory where things are going? Yeah. So first, I guess we should recognize that this particular sub-neighborhood or, you know, um, sub-settlement has had pretty wide-based political support across the center-right of the Israel political spectrum. Um, yet your Lapid, who is sort of the uh, father of centrism in Israel at the moment and the head of the Yesh Atid, or We Have a Future party, um, laid the cornerstone for Nativ Havot um, when it was founded, and uh, it has been endorsed uh, by any number of Israeli political figures. Um, but Interestingly enough, uh, because the settlement is located in the Gush Etzion region of the West Bank, which is not necessarily known for its, you know, particularly vituperative or violent activism, um, the leaders of both the Yesha Council, which is the umbrella organization representing the hundred and you know twenty odd settlements and outposts um, in the West Bank, and um, the head of the Gush Etzion Regional Council have actually both taken a kind of moderate line here. Um, you know, they've not urged huge protests like we saw um, uh, in previous years in settlements like Amona, um, nor have they, um, you know, uh, kind of been stirring the pot to um, have a bit more of a, you know, violent demonstration. The crowds that came out um, to uh, resist the demolitions were actually relatively small, less than a thousand people. And again, these leaders um, had actually really called that the protests really be taking place in front of the Israeli high court instead of, of um, within the settlement itself, because they build themselves as within the Israeli national consensus. And they think that they have sort of bigger fish to fry with the Israeli administration than what's really actually happening on the ground, because they feel so secure um, in their own future that they don't even think that the real issue is what's going on with these 15 houses, but more what um, kind of relationship that they want to have with um, Israeli leadership. Moreover, as you said, um, indeed, the deal that was coming out of this um, demolition of 15 houses is that um, there's plans to uh, greatly expand this whole neighborhood in El Azar in the future. I don't know exactly how many houses um, will be built there, but um, with the retroactive legalization of um, many settlements in the West Bank, um, this is sort of as uh, as uh, Ayelet Shaked, um, a minister in, in the current government uh, who represents the Jewish Home or Yesh Atid party had suggested, this is just sort of losing the battle to win the war. 
As you had mentioned, the uh, Gush Etzion settlements are, in the, the grand scheme of things, relatively moderate, at least compared to other settlements. Um, but we did see some degree of uh, violence, kind of more from the hilltop youth kind of uh, demographic, like the radical settlers who come from other locations, or were those residents of Nativ Havot? So, in fact, um, there had been a kind of deal that had been worked out ahead of time that 13 out of the 15 houses would be uh, evacuated and demolished basically without intensive protest. The remaining two um, were commandeered by groups of younger uh, Israelis. I don't think we know exactly who they are. We assume that they're the Setyer youth, but it's possible they could even come from other parts of Israel. I don't know. Um, and those two were really the site of the major protest over the last, um, you know, few days. I mean, is there an expectation when these kinds of things happen that a settlement demolition would be kind of a magnet for radical, um, you know, more radical types who, who would want, you know, to seek a confrontation with the authorities and the police and, and like sort of make a stand in front of the court? Sure. I mean, even if, um, you know, there's a sense amongst um, is the Israeli settler leadership and perhaps more broadly within the Israeli political establishment that this is sort of just losing a small battle to win the greater war, um, you know, these, these um, you know, relatively small scale protests can't go unacknowledged um, because um, for them it's sort of um, a microcosm of what they fear could happen in the future. Um, so certainly, you know, no, no sub subsettlement or, um, you know, house is going to go down without a fight. Um, but I think in terms of the scale of the protest, it's been relatively small c- compared to um, what we've seen in other parts um, of the West Bank. Um, in terms of who comes to these protests, um, you know, the Hilltop Youth today is kind of a varied um, group of people. Certainly, they are you know teenagers and young adults that spent their life growing up in the settlements. But there's also um, you know another subconstituency of young adults who or you know um, who come from all over Israel that are sort of um, attracted to both um, the ideology as well as the kind of lack of supervision that they have up on a hilltop in the West Bank. So it's been the kind of place that a lot of um, youth from troubled homes and juvenile delinquents and, you know, others who have been, you know, radicalized in groups like La Hava um, have come to um, join in the protest movement and sometimes living in outposts, even if they didn't really grow up there. So, um, so the Hilltop Youth is kind of made up of um, a motley crowd of, um, of teenagers, um, and it's not always clear exactly where they come from. Nativ Havot is located adjacent to Efrat, which is a hub for American Jewish settlers. I don't know how what the demographics are in terms of how many of the settlers are composed of Americans, but what do you think drives people to go, then move to the West Bank over the Green Line? And are they different because are they more ideologically driven than the average settlers because they've been they've flown across the world in order to be here? Absolutely. So Elazar was actually founded um, initially um, with the support of Jewish American immigrants from the United States. Um, it also adjoined several other settlements with large um, Jewish American populations, including those that were built by and for Jewish American immigrants like Efrat. Um, today, approximately 15% um, or upwards of 60,000 Americans um, within the Israeli settler movement in the West Bank um, itself, and I'm not counting areas um, over the Green Line attached to the municipality of Jerusalem, uh, live in, in the West Bank. So um, that's 15% of the about 400,000 Jewish Israeli settlers in the West Bank today. Um, and uh, the uh, population within the sort of uh, smaller unit of the Gush Etzion region of the West Bank, this sort of area of the West Bank that adjoins Jerusalem, um, the population of English speakers and certainly of Americans themselves is actually probably um, higher than that. So um, that's you know the area of the West Bank where they tend to cluster. And certainly Jewish American immigrants who came to settle beyond the Green Line are primarily driven by an ideological agenda. Um, they chose to leave you know, very comfortable hearts uh, excuse me, very comfortable lives in the United States to settle at the heart of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and um, while the Gush Etzion settlements tend to have a reputation as being uh, more moderate uh, in their outlook and um, part of the Israeli consensus, 
Um, I wouldn't say that all Jewish American immigrants who have chosen to settle in that area are necessarily only, um, you know, sort of um, happy yuppies living over the Green Line, but also have, um, you know, a deep political um, feeling about the project in which they've engaged in. So bouncing off of it, you have this block of uh, ideological uh, Anglophone American uh, settlers how representative of the broader uh, settlement movement are they? I mean, you have American settlers are what, like 15 percent of, of all settlers in the West Bank about that. So uh, American settlers are about 15 percent of all settlers in the West Bank today. How representative are they of the broader settlement movement of, uh, as people who are ideologically driven? They're there because of their beliefs um, versus people who are there maybe because of economic considerations um, or also the ultra-Orthodox, you know, who don't share the ideology of the the national religious uh, movement, the more nationalist elements. Right. So the national religious settler is the image most of us have in our mind. I think if we closed our eyes and um, had to try to consider, um, you know, what our image from uh, either the media or the scholarly literature is presented about the classic native Israeli settler, I would imagine that you might come up with an image of a um, Jewish Israeli of uh, Orthodox religious bent um, on a windswept hilltop of the West Bank, inspired by Messianic zeal to live in the whole of the land of Israel. However, today's Israeli settler movement in 2018 is a far more um, complex mosaic of individuals with various motivations than it was um, in the early uh, um, early days of the Israeli settler movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Today, most uh, the national religious movement um, and its sort of um, market share within the Israeli settler uh, movement as a whole is on the decline. Today, most settlers are there for economic reasons, whether because they are secular, secular Israelis looking for cheaper housing over the Green Line or ultra-Orthodox Israelis who now today comprise over 25% of the Israeli settler movement that simply can't afford to live in major metropolitan areas in Israel with such large families. There are also various other kinds of immigrant groups, other constituencies that have joined the Israeli settler movement um, since the 1967 war. So today, um, it's a much more complex uh, mosaic of individuals and uh, and communities than it once was. So Americans, um, you know, uh, comprise approximately 15% of the Israeli settlers movement today. Um, and I guess they're just about as representative of the Israeli settler movement as any one of these other groups that coexists within it. Um, certainly, they are not a majority, um, but they are a sizable minority that also um, is not only overrepresented demographically um, in terms of you know Jewish American population within uh, Israel-Palestine as a whole, but really punch above their weight um, politically um, and ideologically within the future of this movement. You mentioned that American settlers are about 15% of the settlers in the West Bank, um, but American Jews are the first or second largest Jewish population in the world, depending on who you ask. You mentioned that they have outsized political influence, but in terms of sheer numbers, that are, is their population really disproportionate compared to other populations uh, from the diaspora as they're represented in the settlements, people who immigrate to the settlements from former Soviet Union, Europe, Latin America... South Africa and so on. Um, absolutely, within the Western Jewish diaspora, um, you know, we don't have exact figures for the number of Americans who are in Israel Palestine as a whole. But my research has shown that something we can estimate that something like a third of Jewish American immigrants to Israel Palestine live over the Green Line. Um, this, in comparison, say to British immigrants to Israel, where less than five percent. Um, of the total number of British immigrants to Israel end up over the Green Line. And today, you know, the Israeli settler movement is 15 percent American and, you know, over 60,000 have um, have settled there. Um, so it's certainly within um, Western Western Jewish immigrant populations, um, they are not o only sort of punching above their weight politically, but are overrepresented demographically within the Israeli settler movement. Um, if we look at other immigrant communities, so to Israel, um, it's hard to say. I don't think we have the data to support that yet, but I think the you know the conventional wisdom 
um, is that there are um, sizable populations of other immigrants within within um, the Israeli, you know, the Israeli settler constituency. But I think we need uh, more statistics to really be able to back that up. Interesting. So how do you think Israelis in Israel proper perceive the settlers and the settler settlement movement and in particular the American Jews who are coming to make Aliyah? Because I'm sure a lot of them are also grateful for the support and really appreciate diaspora Jewry caring. But there might be this other element of of discomfort with the idea. Yeah, so so certainly, um, you know, Israelis um, and sort of the Zionist in, G- in general has had this tension between um, the understanding of kibbutz galiot and sort of the ingathering of the exiles and, you know, the actual realities of immigrants um, of all kinds living alongside what we call the Sabras or those of, um, you know, somewhat less recent arrival, um, although we're talking really about 1882 to the present, so a very short period of time, on, um, you know, sort of this discomfort between, um, you know, theory and praxis when it comes to immigrants. Um, you know, is, Israel is grateful um, for both the financial and um, and uh, demographic contributions that diaspora Jewry can make. Um, certainly much of um, Israeli society has been transformed by the Americanization of Israel over the past several decades. Uh, but the reality of absorbing American immigrants has always been more difficult, um, you know, either within or beyond the green line. Um, Americans often come with a certain set of values and expectations that they want to see um, being uh, realized in Israel. I think any American that's ever stood in the middle of the central bus station in Jerusalem and um, would, would understand exactly the kind of clash of civilizations that I'm talking about. Um, and this doesn't always sit so well with Israelis who don't want to be lectured by um, their diaspora Jewish colleagues about, um, you know, how they should live and what they should do. Um, but the Israeli settler movement, I think, was slightly different, at least in the beginning, because it was really desperate for, um, you know, finances and manpower. And American Jews um, who came along seeing it also as a kind of pioneering opportunity to make, you know, a true contribution to the future of, um, you know, the Israeli settler enterprise, you know, also saw it as an opportunity to um, be in a place where they could really get their hands dirty in the process of settlement. And sort of these two ideas went in tandem that both the Israeli settler movement needed them and they needed the Israeli settler movement. Um, within you know Israel proper, I think it's a bit more complicated. Um, um, and certainly these tensions remain. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the American-Israel relationship is sort of a dynamic, uh, a dynamic uh, partnership um, and um, it continues to evolve. We've talked a lot about American Jews in the settlement movement as far as those who actually live in the settlements, who physically get up and move to Israel, move to the West Bank, um, or previously in Gaza, and live in the settlements. Um, but what about um, American Jews in the settlement movement supporting it from afar? You know, One of the things we've been dealing with um, in the U.S. is... Um, a lot of people in President Trump's inner circle, um, I don't want to say a lot of people um, and blow it out of proportion, but there are a couple of big names in his inner circle, namely um, Jared Kushner and the Kushner family and Ambassador David Friedman, U.S. Ambassador to Israel, who have in their previous careers as private citizens financially and politically supported the settlements. How do those kinds of people factor in, people who don't necessarily get up and pick up and move to the West Bank, um, but are American Jews or, or Jews in other diaspora communities who support the settlement enterprise from their home countries? Well, certainly. I mean, the preponderance of um, uh, individuals who have been politically and economically supported supportive of the Israeli settler enterprise within the Trump administration is um, unprecedented and certainly uh, I, I cannot see how it will not have a role in shaping um, policy towards the Israel-Palestine conflict going forward. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's a very significant development over the past few years. Um, and I, 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 like everyone else, am, am, am very uh, interested and concerned about how that will play out in terms of the peace process and otherwise. Um, but I think what I, I've wanted to stress through my own research is that um, this is a story of 60,000 individuals who have moved to uh, over the Green Line. And each one of those 60,000 individuals probably knows another American Jew these are people who are, uh, you know, members of your synagogue, who shop in your kosher supermarket, um, who you may have known from school or from Jewish summer camp. 
um, or from work or from any one of the other, um, you know, nodes in which um, our lives intersect with Israeli, with Jewish American settlers. Um, so I think that, you know, this whole web of, um, you know, um, of a transnational relationships um, has significance. And I, um, you know, I think we should also wonder not just about those, you know, high level big names that we know about from the newspaper, but how this sort of broader um, family of relationships between uh, Americans on um, in the United States and American Israeli settlers um, beyond the Green Line um, will uh, transform um, both our understanding of American Judaism as well as um, diaspora Israel relations. So do you see a major shift in terms of active Jewry in the United States? Because, of course, um, earlier on, the major Zionist elements of the American Jewish community were largely secular, uh, reform and conservative Jews, which is who you saw at the forefront. But now you have more and more modern Orthodox Jews getting involved. Um, and of course, we know that they're um, that they have more children and they are becoming a more and more substantial portion of the general American Jewish population. So how is that going to affect the way support for Israel looks from America? And how is it going to support the general uh, general U.S.-Israel relationship and affect it as a whole? I mean, I think that's an important question and one that um, is not germane only to American Jewry, but to diaspora Jewish communities um, across the world. Um, increasingly, you know, Jewish communities um, um, are are going to be increasingly strictly orthodox. Um, and um, and uh, this uh, demographic change, I think, is going to revolutionize diaspora Israel relations. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation these days um, about um, tensions between, say, reforming conservative Jewry and the Israeli government. Um, but I think that there's now going to be an increasing onus to prove um, onus on these movements to prove their relevance to um, Israeli governments and to the Israeli future, because I think that the is Israel looks out on diaspora communities and sees that, um, you know, the wave of the future is not going to be them. It's going to be young strictly orthodox um, Jews and these are where they want to invest and, th and this is where they want to make their investments um, in the future just simply because they are taking kind of a cold-hearted eye towards demographic trends and think to themselves that a few generations from now um, there may not be very much um, of um, denominational life um, in the diaspora that things could look quite different. Um, so we're in a real period of flux right now. And um, I think it will be important for um, those um, both within and outside the Orthodox uh, Jewish community in the diaspora to, um, you know, assert what they see as their stake in Israel's future. So you think the Israeli government sees this as an issue that they can just wait out, that they can sit on their hands and, and ignore or largely ignore the the more vocal elements in the American Jewish institutional community and, and the more activist community and sort of wait for these demographic trends to take their hold? Look, I don't think it's quite so dramatic. There are certainly elements um, within the Israeli government, including someone like Education Minister Naftali Bennett, who himself really comes from more of a modern Orthodox background, um, who is invested in the future of diaspora Jewish life. Um, and not only amongst the strictly Orthodox, I think, um, but more generally because um, there are concerns that, you know, um, if you are shrinking all of diaspora Israel support to only one um, small demographic, that's not necessarily in the interest of um, diaspora Jewry or of Israel in the future. But yes, I do think that there's, um, you know, some part um, of the Israeli political establishment that is just reading um, the demographic tables and saying to themselves, Diaspora Jewry is going to look very different um, in a generation or two or three, and we have to plan for our future based on that demographic reality and not on um, what um, diaspora Jewish life may look like today. So given this shift, this demographic shift, what do you think Zionists who are not right wing and who are not particularly religious can do to help, I don't know, explain a need for something beyond the status quo? Um, need for some type of change and, and just sort of advance any remnant of a peace process, at least theoretically, and appeal to that community. Look, there's been much ado about the distancing between diaspora Jewry and Israel. And I think that if stakeholders, particularly outside of strictly Orthodox communities, want to have their say, then I think they need to prove to themselves and to the state of Israel that um, there's true engagement, not only amongst sort of an, uh, a 
you know, older generation of Zionists, but a young generation of Zionists, um, that they are not people just merely to write off, but people who are clearly engaged um, in Israel's future. But look, I think in general, it is a reality that both diaspora Jewry and Israel is becoming more strictly orthodox. Um, and these are where the demographic trends are growing. So I, I think that this idea um, of, um, you know, uh, that the denominations really stick to themselves and that there isn't um, that much um, uh, engagement um, and willingness to build bridges between various denominations. And I understand that it's not always so easy, um, but I think that there has to be more effort made to build these kinds of bridges um, within uh, the Jewish community as a whole, both in the United States and overseas and in between, um, you know, people of various ranges of observance, because, um, this is uh, going to be important, I think, for the idea of Kalal Israel, whether we're talking about within Israel itself or, um, you know, anywhere else in the world um, in the future, given what the realities of Jewish demography are going to look like. Um, you mentioned the idea of younger generations proving their value or their utility to the Israeli state. Um, the government in terms of where they'll be in engagement. In the U.S., there's been, personally, I don't think a big in terms of numbers movement, but a, a very vocal movement in recent years of younger American Jews specifically engaging uh, with Judaism and with Israel on the basis of their opposition to the Israeli government and specifically in cycling back to, to our main conversation, uh, their their opposition to what's going on in the occupied territories, to settlements and, and a pro what they see as like a pro settlement government. And that's a movement that's been very vocal, even if the, if they might not necessarily have the numbers to back it up. Um, what do you think the, the Israeli government makes of, of, of these kinds of movements in the US or, or are they not on their radar? And does it impact anything in terms of um, their orientation towards settlements. I mean, you mentioned Naftali Bennett being very invested in diaspora relations, and you know he's worked with a lot of American organizations on that. And there's like the Mosaic Project, but he's not gonna. Uh, he's obviously not gonna change his position on settlements or his beliefs on settlements, regardless of what American Jews think. Right. I guess when I was speaking about distancing or this issue of distancing, that I wasn't trying to suggest that you know. Um, young American teenagers or diaspora teenagers should somehow become, you know, tools of the Israeli state. Um, I'm, I think what I'm trying to assert is that um, given um, demographic change, um, those, you know, younger American Jews um, who are increasingly, I think, losing their connection to Israel will also lose their voice um, if they are going to kind of tune out of this debate. Um, but how they engage is a very different issue. I think the question is not, um, you know, I think right now the, the, the real issue is, um, do you engage at all? How you engage um, is sort of a second second question entirely, but certainly um, there are a lot of, um, you know, um, groups are emerging um, that um, are challenging what has been the American Jewish establishment, um, establishment's line on Israel and sort of the position of broader American Jewish community towards Israel, which has to do with demographic change. It has to do with failure of the peace process. It has to do with many, many factors. Um, and I think the Israeli government is aware of them, though, of course, as you suggested, because of numbers, um, you know, um, the question is, is, um, you know, what is important? Um, is it sort of a mass movement or is it going to be sort of the broader um uh, you know, the broader impact of an ideology, despite, um, you know, sort of a smaller constituency. I think those questions are all up for debate. What is more threatening to the state of Israel right now is not necessarily uh, left-wing Zionist groups or, you know, non or anti-Zionist Jewish groups, but the boycott sanctions and divestment movement, which the Israeli government specifically, you know, the strategic, the, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs has taken a definite interest in and is, you know, trying to block entry of some of its activist Israel and more generally, um, you know, advocating overseas um, against um, the movement. Um, I think where some of these questions intersect. And again, what we're getting into is this whole question of Zionism and intersectionality more generally, which is very challenging for young American Jews um, and something that, you know, a lot of my new work is really trying to speak to um, in the interest of somehow keeping American, um, young American Jews engaged with um, 
you know, the Zionist project, liberal Zionism with Israel. Um, but I think where where um, things get more tricky is if and when some of these, um, you know, left wing American Zionist groups or even non anti Zionist Jewish groups um, support or um, are in solidarity with the boycott sanctions and divestment movement. And I think um, although obviously I don't speak on their behalf, I think that is what will really become more of a red line for the state of Israel in the future. Coming up on the, the issue of the boycott movement and that being a primary issue for the government today, do you think it even registers with the with the government um, in Israel that uh, the expanding popularity of the boycott movement has anything to do with like the preeminence of, of the settler movement? Because there are obviously there are some elements of the boycott movement that are opposed to Israel in any shape and any borders, but at least like at its fringes and, and who are just like the casual supporter of the, the boycott turned off to Israel because of um, what they see as like this rightward lurch um, from the government. Look, I, I think, and again, I don't speak on behalf of the Israeli government by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that the Ministry of Strategic Affairs seems, sees the BDS movement as basically dedicated towards the destruction of Israel um, within any border and not about, you know, um, what is happening over the green line. So for them, it's all um, kind of one and the same. Um, and I do think that the, you know, frankly speaking on my own behalf here, that the boycott sanctions and divestment movement is a kind of open tent. And there are people who are um, dedicated to the two state solution um, who coexist amongst people who are dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel within any border. Um, and, you know, the boycott sanction and divestment's own desire to keep this um, or inability to really police the boundaries of their community. I'm not quite sure which one it is. Uh, but in any case, the, the fluid situation that they have within their own camp um, is, um, you know, does create um, this opportunity for those who oppose the BDS movement to say, well, they're just a bunch of um uh, anti-Zionists dedicated to destruction of the state of Israel and maybe a bunch of anti-Semites too. Um, and we are going to, um, you know, look upon this movement as, um, you know, a serious red line. I understand that those like Peter Beinart have advanced um, the thesis that, um, you know, the Israeli settler movement um, is responsible for um, millennial distancing from Israel for at least the last decade or more. Um, I only agree with him in part. I think the um, reality that while um, certainly many young diaspora Jews are deeply concerned about what's happening in the occupied territories um, and it challenges many of our understandings of democracy and multiculturalism that we've grown up with in the West, um, I think the larger concern about distancing from Israel is not only um, the Israeli settler movement or truly what uh, the state of Israel is doing, but um, a lack of um, Jewish identification and Zionist identification to begin with. Um, and so it's very easy to, um, I think, be distant from Israel and have a lack of connection from Israel um, if that um, hasn't been part of um, a general uh, background um, in terms of Jewish education, in terms of Zionist education, um, in terms of just sort of life education um, from, from the beginning. I think also that, um, you know, there are many reasons that millennials um, are struggling um, with questions of Zionism and intersectionality and a lot of other developments that are happening within, um, you know, their countries of origin. And Israel is only one piece of this larger struggle for um, a new generation of American youth. Um, and um, while it seems to be sort of magnified for those of us that really care about these issues in particular, I think it's just part of a larger generational agenda and maybe a gener generational angst and we kind of need to see it in that perspective. You mentioned that American Jews aren't feeling so connected to Israel largely because they may just not feel so connected to their Judaism as a whole and to their identity as a Jewish person. So what do you think the Jewish community in the diaspora can be doing to sort of transform Jewish education, Israel education in a way that does appeal to people? And the past week, we've seen a lot of discussion around in camps and, and schools and what that education can look like. Right. So, um, you know, I grew up, um, first of all, I grew up in a different moment than the average American teenager today. Um, I grew up in the midst of the peace process. My Jewish education was in part about being, you know, hauled into the um, 
Jewish Day School Auditorium to watch the famous handshakes on the White House lawn. I think step one is we need to acknowledge that we don't live in this moment and that um, the average um, uh, American Jewish American teenager or, um, you know, uh, South African teenager or otherwise um, lives in a very different reality where the peace process it seems to be over. All they have ever seen of Israel-Palestine is the cycle of violence. Um, and in terms of the evolution of their Jewish identities, that, um, you know, um, Jewishness is more and more accepted in the public sphere than it ever was. But sometimes that acceptance also kind of comes at the cost of um, maybe watering down the kind of um, intense engagement with Jewish identities that people of previous generations have when they were restricted in the sense to only having Jewish friends and only going to Jewish schools and being very much more involved in a Jewish community than a larger kind of multicultural community. So I think step one is sort of, um, you know, acknowledging where we are. Step two is that, you know, there are a lot of really um, wonderful organizations that are providing nuanced um, and um as well as very rich Jewish education, both formally and informally. Um, and um, and there are opportunities out there to get involved. Um, and certainly I have benefited from being a part um, of um, these organizations in the past. Um, some of it is about um, making opportunities to be involved in both formal and informal Jewish and Zionist education affordable in places like the United States, where this is becoming really cost prohibitive to, um, you know, young Jewish families and their children. Uh, and I think the second is making um, these organizations that are providing this kind of, um, you know, rich Jewish education um, accessible um, in all kinds of ways. Um, I think we also have to really be thinking more about what's really Jewish in Jewish education. Going to a Jewish school alone doesn't mean that you're really getting a lot of content. Um, and um, I think this is an important part of the question. Um, and certainly, uh, although, you know, I don't share Naftali Benevitz's um, ideas uh, necessarily about um, Judaism or Zionism, um, I am open to this idea of a growing partnership between uh, diaspora, Jewry and Israel and an understanding that Israel um, also needs to invest in the lives of diaspora Jews, um, not necessarily just ideologically um, in the sense that diaspora communities have value and their important um, and rich Jewish life happening, um, not only within the state of Israel, but also investing financially um, for much of Israel's existence. This has been a one way, um, a one way arrow that, um, you know, diaspora Jews have opened their hearts and their wallets to the state of Israel to subsidize its future. Um, and it may be time um, for the state of Israel to recognize those contributions and start um, and start um, uh, investing uh, in the opposite direction. I think you raise a good point. I, I also think that it goes hand in hand with an issue that I think the, the diaspora is sometimes used uh, as a term erroneously and interchangeably with uh, American Jewry, which are there are other diaspora communities that, that could benefit from uh, Israel's investment and have benefited in the past that could benefit more. And not only have made incredible contributions to the state of Israel um, that far exceed those of American Jewry, both financially and politically, um, you know, because I've now had the opportunity to spend about five years of my life living outside of the United States, um, I am very attuned to the, the, the diaspora Israel relationship, at least in, you know, public discourse really means the America Israel relationship. But, um, you know, other diaspora communities um, do not want to be forgotten and have their own particular relationship with the state of Israel. And I think it's important um, that they also have a voice at the table here. Um, American Jewry will certainly, you know, because of population, because of financial and political contributions will always dominate. Um, but I think it's time to also listen to the voices of other diaspora communities that have um, an ongoing and often uh, um, you know, creative relationship with the state of Israel um, that's uh, worth considering. Have you noticed um, this idea that the Israeli government is sort of pushing forth the idea that anti-Semitism in Europe is unbearable, which it might be, um, but there's an idea amongst left-wing diaspora Jews that the Israeli government is pushing this forth in order to increase immigration to Israel, and um, there's a little bit of tension surrounding that idea. So if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, um, yes, certainly here living in the UK or, um, you know, across uh, across the pond in France, there's a lot of discussion about, um, you know, whether the Israeli government is exploiting conditions on the ground to increase Aliyah. Um, now, um, we should always point out that um, 
you know, um, aspirations for Aliyah to Israel have never met realities. And then in every diaspora, there's always been um, sort of a tension between what the Israeli government had hoped and what um, actually happened. Um, and I can tell you through my own, re own research, um, really actually how difficult it is to induce um, immigrants to come to Israel, um, regardless of what's happening in their country's origin. I, I would suggest that, you know, now living in Europe, or at least having lived in Europe up until, you know, Brexit came about, um, um, that, you know, uh, these diaspora Jewish communities are um, very aware of this discussion. Um, but on the other hand, um, they are very concerned about, um, you know, their future. Sense is also that um, they are concerned about um, the activities of the state of Israel because they tend to feel the blowback onto them perhaps far more than American Jews do um, um, when, you know, there is a war or there's, um, you know, events in the news. Um, so that sort of question about anti-Semitism goes both ways um, because, you know, they don't want to be exploited. Um, but at the other hand, they understand that um, there, there are some real concerns. Do you feel as if European Jews are there's the tension now between them and Israel because they in some ways feel want to blame Israel for some of the anti-Semitism? Because I've noticed that a lot of like hard left movements might have that view that like Israel's causing anti-Semitism, which is of course not on the whole true, but is the, does that sentiment exist and does it affect how European Jews view Israel? Look, I think Amer um, European Jews view Israel um, in generally in general um, quite differently, say than American Jews, because um, you know the discourse of Zionism being a meaningful part um, uh, of Jewish life because Israel always provided a kind of um, safe haven is not something that we really hear talked about in America. Maybe there's been a little bit more, you know, bubbling up. Um, because of Trump and some of um, you know some of what has developed over the past year or two during his administration, but European Jews are much more attached to that sort of old Zionist idea of um, of Israel as being the place of refuge in case of you know um, anti-Semitism or hostile conditions than American Jews are. Um, but I don't. I, I, so I don't think that they are necessarily blaming Israel because they, um, you know, because they see that as being sort of what Israel is for in a way, if that makes sense. That this idea of place of refuge sort of precedes any behavior that Israel um, may engage in that you know may cause difficulty for um, for diaspora Jews. So it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg there. But um, I, I do think though that in general there is concern about uh, European Jewry having a say in um, Israel affairs because um, what happens in Israel, um, you know, geographically um, and ideologically tends to have a bigger impact on their lives. I think it's interesting that you bring up Trump as uh, and the, the anti-Semitism that has bubbled up in the past two years in the U.S. as uh, reinvigorating this idea of Israel as a place of refuge for Jews facing anti-Semitism. I've seen rather, rather than, than Trump being seen as an impetus for Jews to see Israel as, as a place of refuge, just like you mentioned that it's not just the settlements, but it's a broader disengagement of Zionism, like Israel is viewed as sort of being part of the Trump problem. It's just one part, but it's like this, it's like just this idea of nationalism and like an ethnic national state um, sort of falls into the same type of problem as, as the Trump problem. Well, look, I mean, I think most of the, you know, discourse against Trump is coming out of places like the Women's March and other, you know, progressive alliances in the United States. But I would also recognize that those are progressive spaces that are generally also hostile to Israel um, and that there seems to be, um, you know, Israel is, is labeled as the one identity politics that seems to be more problematic than any other kind of identity po politics. So I think that those people who are supporters of the state of Israel, liberal Zionists or otherwise, are increasingly finding um, these progressive spaces to be somewhat um, antagonistic to their own identity politics agenda. Um, but I would say this isn't new. Actually, my next book project is really about how this has been, you know, how this sort of evolved after the 1967 war. But I would say that, you know, for those people who are interested um, in having some connection with Israel, I'm the, you know, the desire to um, oppose Trump um, is going to maybe come at the cost of some of their um, particularist interests, because if you're going to throw your hat in with some of these progressive camps, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to be a Zionist amongst them. Definitely. That's I think that's something that um, you know, both myself and, and Shani have seen like here in here in the U.S. Um, and it definitely 
changes the way the conversation is about Israel. Yeah, I think there's this growing idea that support for Israel and support for the Israeli government have to be the same thing. And if you support one, then you have to support the other. And I think it's actually growing on the right and the left. I think on the left, actually, there is just general opposition to the Zionist idea that, you know, Zionism is colonialism, Zionism is apartheid. It doesn't really matter whether it's Netanyahu or uh, Meretz that's, you know, sitting in the seat of the Israeli government, that any 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 Zionist from across the political spectrum, you know, is unacceptable as a um, leader of the state of Israel and further that Zionism in and of itself is unacceptable as an idea. Um, so that uh, is um, what I see as being happening on the left. On the right, I think it's a bit more tricky. Looks, um, groups like APAC, um, you know, have always said that you know we're always in the interest of whatever the state of Israel is doing, and we're no, you know, we support the government, of the state of Israel, whoever he or she may be. Um, but you know, with the decline of APAC's own market share within this conversation since the Iran deal, um, I think that you know um, there has been less um, less moderation of this conversation coming from um, an organized. Israel lobby, um, and, and therefore maybe perhaps more, you know, um, slipperiness between Israel and the Israeli government. Um, I think there's also this development um, um, on the alt right, which is, you know, a concern for those sort of within the mainstream right about people who are often deeply anti-Semitic, but pro-Zionist and their views on Zionism tend to be quite right-wing. So how they're going to kind of negotiate that understanding of who it is, is well, what, the, how mainstream people um, on the American right are going to kind of negotiate that understanding to sort of distance themselves from the alt-right, but also wanting to kind of set lines that, and they're sort of themselves about what it is about Israel that they particularly support. Um you know, also those people who have sort of migrated into the American right that are pro-Israel don't necessarily share the larger agenda of the American right, especially um, Zionists who, you know, are voting um, as Republicans because they are sort of Israel firsters within their lists of priorities, but often don't share the other social and political agendas in the American right. So I think that that will kind of dictate the conversation about Israel is what um, what role that constituency has within the broader American right um, in sort of shaping the ideas of how the American right will see Israel in the future. It's definitely a trend that people are going to be paying attention to here in the United States, and people who are concerned with this issue over in Israel will be watching closely as well. Sarah, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, it's really been insightful and valuable, and we hope to continue this conversation with you in the future. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. I really appreciated hearing your insights on all the recent developments happening in Israel. I hope being back uh, in the United States in the fall will really help facilitate this ongoing conversation. So looking forward to speaking again soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work at www.israelpolicyforum.org and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram.